As we prepare to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and we will keep it to the end. Give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole hearts. Lead us in the path of your commandments, for we delight in it. And turn our eyes from looking at worthless things, and give us life in your ways. Confirm to your servants your promise, that you may be feared. And help us to understand your word, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series through the gospel of Mark, and we've come to Mark chapter 12, verse 28. You'll find that on page 1079 of many of our pew Bibles. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. So Mark chapter 12, and we're going to begin our reading at verse 28, and we'll read through verse 34, and that will be our text for this morning. So Mark chapter 12, beginning our reading at verse 28, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Uh, This week we come to the last question that is put to Jesus in what we've been calling this series of conflict narratives, uh, stories in the Gospel of Mark where the religious authorities have come into conflict with Jesus over the things he's been saying and the things that he's been doing. Um, and these, these conflicts are really coming to an end here. We notice at the end of our passage, we're told, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Um, And so this conflict narrative has continued to come, have continued to come to us, um, but by the end of this passage, Jesus has, through these conflicts, successfully silenced his opponents. Um, He's come off victorious in these conflicts uh, by their tests, and it's a wonderful testament to us uh, that God can bring good out of evil. Um, Through these conflicts, we've heard incredibly important things uh, for living the Christian life. As a result of these attacks on Jesus and on his teaching, he's told us some wonderful things about the Christian life. And in this passage, we have one of the most important summaries of what the law of God teaches and requires of God's people. That the heart of the law of God is that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength. And that we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. 
Now, it's wonderful to think if there weren't this conflict, we would not have such a clear statement of the law. The Lord can bring good out of evil. And so we want to think about this response to this scribe's question as Jesus reveals to us the great principle of God's law. Um, we want to think about it in the context of the kingdom. That's where Jesus sets this law in its context when he concludes by telling the man he is not far from the kingdom of God. And so we want to think about this great principle of the law and its kingdom context. So we want to think together about the law of God's kingdom, uh, the love of God's kingdom, and the limits of God's kingdom. And we'll hopefully make that third point clear when we get there. The law of God's kingdom, the love of God's kingdom, and the limits of God's kingdom. Uh, The law of God's kingdom is really the subject of this dispute here um, as this scribe comes. It tells us that one of the scribes comes to Jesus and asks a question about the law of God. Uh, That's how this statement is introduced to us. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him which commandment is the most important of all. Uh, He's been a witness to the disputes that have been Uh, engaged in with Jesus. He's been a witness to how Jesus has disputed with these religious authorities. And we could wish that more scribes than just one would recognize the quality of Jesus' answers, but this one does. He sees that Jesus has answered well, and so he asks a vitally important question uh, that reveals sort of how uh, Jewish experts in the law thought about the law. Um, We know that in many ways they said in the five books of Moses, the law, the Pentateuch, um, that that contains 613 commandments. Uh, The legal experts were very clear about that. There are 613 commands in the law. Now, if if you notice in the law that there are 613 commandments, you almost cannot help but start to ask the question, which of these are the most important How do we think about all of these commandments? Uh, Which are the most important of the commandments? How do we think about them in terms of where God wants our obedience to lie? All of them require obedience, but they recognize that some of these are really weighty issues. They're serious and great matters in life. Some of these are lighter issues, smaller matters for life, but since God wants all of them obeyed and we have to think about all of these together, uh, you can see how you might almost it might, might be unavoidable to have these kinds of questions. Which is the most important? How do we think about the importance of these variety of commandments? Um, and it was common for the, the legal experts on the law to come together and to think about how do we talk about the law? How do we summarize the law? How do we make sense of it? So we have one example of an expert in the law who said, uh, you know, charity and deeds of loving kindness outweigh all other commandments in the Torah. If you want to know what are the most important of all these 613 commandments, it's the commandments that deal with charity and loving kindness. Those are the most important, most essential principles. Another opinion that it was categories of the law, like concerning property and the temple service and purity, that were really the essentials of the Torah. So you can see, can't you, how you could have these discussions about how do we categorize these things? What is the most important part? What is the essential part? What is the vital part? Um, I like one story I came across of a famous request by Shammai to Hillel. And he said, teach me the whole Torah while I'm standing on one leg. It's kind of a challenge, right? Can you summarize what the law requires while I'm standing on one leg? Can you give me the whole five books? 
And I like his response. He said, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. You can stand on your other foot now, right? You can almost hear him say that. But you can see how you would try to do this, right? To try to summarize. What is the law really after? What is it teaching? Um, And that's why this scribe asked Jesus this question. Because he's seen his ability to work with the law. He's seen his ability to work with the word of God. He sees this is someone who might have the wisdom to give a good answer to this question. He's already answered questions well. Uh, That has the sense of answers that are good and wholesome and satisfying. Um, Jesus has not done what politicians do in our day, which is not answer the question they're asked. They answer the question they wanted to be asked, um, and they skate anything that they don't want to talk about. And this is not the kind of answer Jesus has given. Uh, This is an answer that's addressed the questions that have been asked of him. He's dealt with them in good and wholesome ways. And this scribe seems to be genuinely interested in Jesus' response. Wants to know how he will answer this question. Um, And as Mark puts this to us, this genuine interest in what Jesus has to say is a significant turning point in these conflict narratives. It's a significant turning point in what's happened in Jerusalem. Uh, For someone to actually be interested, for someone to say, you're answering these questions well, I think it's Mark's way of telling us Jesus is emerging as the clear victor in these conflicts. That ever since chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus has turned away every test that is made of him, and he's replied wisely and with knowledge and understanding to every challenge. It might seem to us that all of his wisdom and all of his knowledge has not made a dent, but here is someone who is listening, who seems genuinely interested in what Jesus has to say. And when this question is answered, as we pointed out, the challengers cease. And this should be an encouragement to us. I like Calvin's observation about this passage, he said, this victory that Jesus obtained ought to greatly encourage us never to become dispirited in the defense of the truth, being assured of its success. It will often happen indeed that enemies shall molest and insult us till the end, but God will at length secure that their fury shall recoil on their own heads, and that in spite of their efforts, truth shall be victorious." Calvin is seeing this in this the day that's coming when Jesus will silence the mouths of all those who question the truth of God. Um, and God's truth will stand victorious in the one who is the truth. That the truth of Christ will one day silence his enemies, just as Jesus here silences his opponents with his wisdom and knowledge. Uh, Calvin holds out to us that hope of that day, of uh, the victory of the truth. And this is a, a precursor of that victory. Um, as this man wants to ask about the law of God's kingdom. And Jesus' answer is a wonderful answer when he tells him that the law of God's kingdom is the love of God's kingdom. And that's how Jesus replies to this question. Jesus uses two texts from the Old Testament, two texts from the law, from the book of Moses, um, and combines them together as a summary of the law. He uses Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and the second part of Leviticus 19, 18. 
Um, Neither of these texts would have been surprising for the religious leaders to hear. They would have acknowledged that those are important commandments from the law. But what is unique to what Jesus does is to take those two, to bring them together, and to summarize the whole principle of the law on the basis of those two commandments. Um, No one has ever done it quite like this. No one has ever given this kind of insight into the law and said, you can summarize the great principle of the law with with this command, the command to love. Um, And what makes Jesus' answer here so unique? Um, Why couldn't other experts in the law really see this as the summary of the law? Well, first what Jesus does is he grounds the law in God's identity. Um, Jesus begins with that, what's called the great Shema. It just is Hebrew for here, and it reminds us of that verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was the essential tenet of the Jewish faith. They would repeat it twice every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was that fundamental principle that reminded them uh, and acknowledges who God is. He is the great God. He is the creator. He is the only one. And he is the one who has freely adopted his people through his gracious covenant. He is the God. He's the only God. And he is our Lord. The Lord our God, the only God there is, has made covenant with us. Has graciously covenant, covenanted with us and made us his people. Uh, It's a testimony before the actual commands of the law are given that this is who God is. It reminds us of his covenant identity and that fundamental covenant promise he made. I will be God to you and to your descendants after you for an everlasting covenant. What Jesus does is begins by grounding the law in the recognition that we are called to respond to the steadfast love of the Lord our God. What are God's people called to do in response to the love with which we've been loved? Not surprisingly, we are to respond to the covenant love of God by loving Him. By recognizing that above all, we owe Him love. Uh, We are very familiar with these summaries of the law. Um, We use one of these summaries from either Matthew or Mark. Um, once a week at least, or once a month at least in our services as we've been going through the Ten Commandments. We've been using them every week. We know those commandments. We know those summaries. Um, And sometimes one of the difficulties in the Christian life are the passages that become very familiar to us is to really think about them and to meditate on them and to really hear them. Uh, Because when we hear them, we think we know them, right? We hear them and we think, yeah, I already know this. Let's get to something I'm not totally familiar with. Um, But it is a wonderful thing to meditate on the fact that that Jesus says that the first and most important command is not worship, it's not honor, it's not fear, it's not obey. The most important command is love. Love the Lord your God. And why is that the most important Because love has to be behind and motivate true worship and true honor and true fear and true obedience. We can't do anything else if we don't truly love the Lord. Um, Everything that we do to serve God actually has to flow from love for him. One commentator said, no man will actually obey God but he who loves him. 
the commencement of godliness is the love of God. Our lives will not be regulated aright until the love of God fills all of our senses. That makes sense, doesn't it? That if we don't love the Lord, then something in our service to Him will always be missing. Um, We need to love Him. And love Him with what kind of love? A love that's the entirety of our being. The entirety of who we are is involved in that love. That's what Jesus says. We could go through and describe what are the differences between the heart and the soul and the mind and the strength, and we could spend a lot of time doing that. Um, But the point in the text is not to tear those four things out and to see what each of those really means. The point is for all of them to function together and to say, what is the clear meaning of all of this? That you're to love God with all of who you are. We don't need to take them all apart. They stand together as a comprehensive whole, a way of saying every part of your being, every part of who you are, must love the Lord with all that is in you. It's sort of like in Psalm 103, verse 1, where we read, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. We don't need to differentiate between what's the difference between the soul and all that is within me. The message is clear in that, isn't it? Bless the Lord with everything I have. Something similar is said in Psalm 108, verse 1. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Right? The whole of who I am, the whole of what I have is to be devoted in love to God. We're to love him with all that we are. As one person put it, to love God in the way defined by this great commandment is to seek God for his own sake, to have pleasure in him and to strive impulsively after him. The love which determines the whole disposition of one's life and places one's whole personality in the service of God reflects a commitment to God which springs from divine sonship. The covenant, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, reminds us who the Lord is for us and who he's been for us in love. It's the same reason the Ten Commandments begins by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm the Lord who loved you, and when you called to me, I didn't forget you. And I looked on your situation, and I heard, and I knew, and I came and I rescued. You see how that would motivate then love to be returned to the God who's loved us so well? And why that love should involve all that we are? Because of the great love with which we've been loved? It's the kind of love that calls for a service that springs for the love with all we are and to give all that we have because we know what we've been given by him. And because he's given so much, we seek to serve him with all that we have. And Jesus says, if you want to understand the law, that's the first and great commandment in the law. That's the first command. And the second is to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. It's second because it depends on and flows from the first command. These two are inseparable. Because if you're not serving God because you love God, you won't serve your neighbors because you love God. Because we love God, we serve our neighbors. After all, aren't our neighbors created in God's image? There's something of God in each one of our neighbors. 
Um, Calvin's really interesting on this when he says, you know, even, even the neighbor who wrongs you and does harm to you, um, there is still something of God in that neighbor and something of God's image that you can reach out to them in love. And he said, how much more is that true of the person who's been renewed in the image of Christ? That they bear his image and there's a reason to love them for his sake. These two, connect, these two commandments are connected. They flow from one another. And the second particularly commands on the fir- depends on the first and flows from it. A wholehearted love for God necessarily finds its expression in a selfless concern for others which decides and acts accordingly. If you don't love God first, you cannot love your neighbor as you love yourself. And because these two commands of love are the fountain from which all service to God flows, that's why Jesus says in Mark 12, 31, there is no other commandment greater than these. These are the two great commands from which all the commands flow out. These are the two great commands from which all service to God must flow. There's nothing more important than these commandments. You see what a masterful summary of God's law that is from our Lord? To say that all service is really just love to God and love to neighbor. And how does this expert in the law respond to Jesus' answer? What does he think of the law of the kingdom? Well, he he responds to that statement in verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Here too we see how Jesus is being victorious in these conflicts. Because here is someone who after he answers Jesus' question, or Jesus answers his question, responds by saying, Well done, teacher. What you said is true. Um, Before they said to Jesus, we know you are true. We know that you don't care what people think. We know you teach the truth. That was completely insincere. There's, There's total sincerity here when he says, you are right, teacher. You have answered well. No religious authority has responded to Jesus this way. You have answered well. What you said is true. Here again, we are given, I think, by by Mark through the Holy Spirit, a vision of the victory of our Lord. That here is someone who says, you are right. What you say is true. But the interesting thing about how the scribe responds is not just that he says, you are right. But the conclusion he draws from the truth that Jesus has proclaimed. He says, you are right. God is one and the love you've described is the love that God requires. There is no commandment greater than these. But then he goes on to say in verse 33, the love you have described is much more important than everything else. Much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's taking what Jesus has taught and extending it to its logical conclusion, but it's sort of amazing that this man would say that. That this kind of love is much more than the temple service. 
much more than what goes on in the temple rituals. And that's kind of astonishing because they're having this conversation in Jerusalem and what dominates the Jerusalem skyline? It's the temple of God. And for them to have this discussion and the temple to be right there in the background and to have this teacher of the law say, you're right, that love is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices is an amazing thing for him to say. As one person put it, this is a man whose professional concern focuses around sacrificial regulations. So for him to make this sweeping demotion of the whole system of temple sacrifices is remarkable. This is his professional job to talk about the importance of the sacrifices. So for him to hear the law of love and to say that's more important. That's much more important than everything else is a remarkable statement. And I think it's showing that he's taking what he knows of God's word and letting it be shaped by the teaching of Jesus. Right? He's a scribe. He's an expert in the word of God. And it's almost as if as Jesus says these things to him, there are certain other aspects of the scriptures that are tumbling into his mind. Like what Samuel said to King Saul when he offered a sacrifice instead of obeying what God had told him to do, Samuel said to him, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Or as the Lord said through Hosea, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The two words Hosea uses are the same words the scribe uses. It's almost as if the teaching of Jesus is causing these other scriptures to tumble into place in his mind so that he draws that conclusion, this kind of love, is much more important than everything else. He's seeing that truth. And Jesus reacts favorably to that observation, doesn't he? Jesus says to him in verse 34a, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. The answer shows wisdom and understanding. He's answered wisely. But where has that left him? It's left him not far away. And we're learning something from our Lord, not just about the love of God's kingdom, but also about the limits of God's kingdom. And maybe when I announced that as one of my points, you thought, I think he might be losing it. What does he mean, the limits of God's kingdom? Isn't God a king over everything? What limits are you talking about? Well, I had sort of in mind like the city limits. Right, If you're driving around lost and trying to get to San Diego and you don't know where you are and you pull over and ask someone and they say you're not far away from San Diego, that's told you two things that are essentially important, right? You're not far away, that's good, but you're not where you want to be. You're not yet there. You're not yet in. Um, we think about the city limits in that way. It limits where the city is. And Jesus uses kind of the limits of the kingdom in this way to say to this man, you've answered wisely concerning the law of God. You're not far away. But what does it mean to be not far away from the kingdom? It means to be not in the kingdom. You're not far away, but you're not in. And we want to think about why Jesus would say this to him. 
Seeing, he, seeing that he answered him wisely, why did he say you're not far away? And I think what the Holy Spirit means to do for us in the book of Mark is to have this trigger something in the back of our minds about what we've heard before in Mark's gospel. We have that happen from time to time, don't we? Where someone will say something to us and we'll immediately think, now what does that remind me of? That sounds familiar. Why is, why is that familiar? We've all had that experience, right? Um, and I think what the Holy Spirit wants to do by saying this, you're not far away from the kingdom. I say, now, now why does that sound somewhat familiar to me? To talk about nearness and to talk about the kingdom of God, I think it's meaning to take us all the way back to the beginning of Mark's gospel. When Jesus began his public ministry, and what did he come and do? We're told in Mark 1, 14 and 15 that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come near. It's the next thing to come. The kingdom of God is not far away. Um, and what is someone to do when they hear that the kingdom of God is not far away? Well, Jesus proclaimed that. Repent and believe in the gospel. The good news of the kingdom come in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is meaning to trigger in our minds that, that nearness of the kingdom and what's required in light of the fact that the kingdom is near. What must one do? One must repent and believe if one wants to be part of the kingdom. We said at the time, what does Jesus mean when he's proclaiming the kingdom of God? It's the new creation. It's the new heavens and the new earth and all of its consummation glory. That's what's coming. That's what's almost here, Jesus proclaims. And it's near in time because the king has come near in history. Jesus is here. That's how you know the kingdom is here. The kingdom has come. Christ, the promised Messiah, is come into the world to begin to exercise his sovereign authority, to inaugurate that kingdom that he will one day come again in glory to bring to its consummation. And seeing that the time is fulfilled and seeing that this kingdom is near in all of its consummation glory, what is the proclamation that is made? If you want to participate in the glory and in the joy of that kingdom that's coming, you must repent and believe in the gospel. That is the way to enter in to the kingdom. Repent of your sins and turn from your sins and toward your God and put your faith and trust in the king of the kingdom who has come to save you from your sins. And you see, when we understand what the kingdom of God is and how one enters into a kingdom, we understand why the scribe is near but why he's not entered in why he's near and not entered in, because he's understood what the law requires. He's seen the love required. He's understood the love that's required. He's understood it's the most important thing. But what he hasn't gone on to do is to see that this perfect law of love utterly condemns him as a transgressor. That this law of love gives him no hope because he has utterly broken this law of love to God and neighbor. 
This scribe should have understood the law and said with Paul, a converted Pharisee who understood the law and understood the gospel, no one is righteous. No, not one. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's why we read the law every week and we remind ourselves that it shows us our sin and consequently our need of Christ. It has to bring us to that point of not just seeing that the law is good, but looking at myself in light of the law and saying, oh no, I'm not good. If that's what God requires, a love of all the heart and all the soul and all the mind and all the strength and a love of neighbor as I love myself, then I'm doomed in myself because I don't live the law. It doesn't do its work for us if it doesn't show us our sin and consequently our need of Christ. And I think that's where this this scribe is right now. He has seen the law, but he doesn't see himself as a transgressor. And if he doesn't see himself as a transgressor, he can't repent. And if he doesn't repent, he can't put his faith and trust in Christ alone to save him from his sin. That's why he's not far away from the kingdom, but he's not yet in. Now, where did he end up? If you thought I was going to tell you, I don't know. We're not told where he ended up. One thing we know for sure is that he couldn't have remained where he was. You can't stay not far away from the kingdom as a permanent situation. You have to go from there one of two places. Either you go from being not far to coming in. You let the law convict you and you realize, I have to come to Christ, I have to flee to Christ to be saved. You let the law do its work and you come in. Or... You're not far away, and you don't come to Christ, and you just get further and further and further away. To be not far from the kingdom, as one person pointed out, is a necessarily transitional place to be. You can't stay there. You either move in or you move further away. You can't stay here. And we don't know which happened to him. We don't know what happened to him, but I think this passage is meant for all of us to ask the question of ourselves, where are we in respect to the kingdom? Where are we in respect to the limits of the kingdom? Um, If you've understood the obligations of the law of God and have recognized in yourself a lovelessness that is deserving of condemnation and have turned in repentance and faith to Christ your Lord, then by God's grace, you've entered into the kingdom of God. You've entered into the kingdom of God. You have forgiveness of sins. You have eternal life. You've entered in. And when that kingdom comes in its fullness, you will enjoy its glory. But it's just possible that there are some of you here who are not yet in the kingdom. And by God's grace, what the Spirit of God has done in this passage is to bring you near today. Right? If in this passage, we've understood what the law requires of us. God has explained to us what this law is. If we've understood this passage, we are then right now not far from the kingdom. 
But if you're one who has not yet entered in, uh, then the pressing duty is to go on to enter in. Don't let this be as near as you ever come to the kingdom. Hearing this passage, hearing this law, and then going from here to get further and further away from the kingdom of God. It says to everyone, if you are near but not yet in, don't fail to enter in. Because as Alexander McLaren put it, if we rest satisfied with being not far away but come no closer, we shall find at last that we are shut out forevermore. Entrance into the kingdom of God is by faith in the Savior Jesus Christ. He alone is the way into the kingdom, and he is the truth, and he is the life. And it's a call for all of us to trust in his perfect life of love that he will graciously impute to all who seek him, to trust in his sacrificial death on the cross where he gave himself up, loving us better than he loved himself, that he might die on the cross and pay the debt of all of our lovelessness to God and to our neighbor. Trust in his death, trust in his life, trust in his resurrection, which is the guarantee that God has accepted his sacrifice on your behalf and know that God will look on you if you cling to him by grace through faith in Christ as if you had never sinned or been a sinner and as if you had perfectly loved God and neighbor as Jesus loved God and neighbor. Trust his perfect life. Trust his sacrificial death. Trust his glorious resurrection. Trust him to save you from your sins. And then if you've entered into the kingdom by grace through faith, then live as a citizen of the kingdom. We look in love on this God who has done so much to save our souls. How could we but return love to him? Let us seek as citizens of the kingdom to strive in gratitude to love this God who saved us with all of our hearts and with all of our souls and with all of our minds and with all of our strength and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. May God give us all the grace to enter the kingdom of God and to live in the love and the joy and the blessedness of that kingdom forevermore. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that all here would come into the kingdom by grace through faith in Christ, and we we recognize that it is possible to come near, but we pray that we would all go on to enter in. We thank you that our Lord has taught us about the love of the kingdom, and we pray that we would see it convicting us as sinners, but we would also see the love of the kingdom revealed in his sacrifice and his willingness to come and save sinners. We pray that everyone here would repent of their sins and believe in his promise, trusting in him for eternal life, and then in gratitude we would go forth and love you and love our neighbors. Hear us and help us in these things, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.